This episode was supposed to be about something different, but I realized that I need to do a bit of explaining first, and the explanations ended up being a whole separate episode. Maybe the original idea will be the next episode. I don't expect you to flock to Patreon just because I publish one episode, but if you want to help me, then please support me on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. And as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, Catherine Matthews, and Robin Williams, friends of the podcast. Join them at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. There is extra material there. But this is Stories of Iceland, and this is episode 42, Thor. Thor and the Norse view of religion. That is it for today. Thanks to Vida von Helstare, Emily Cooper, Julie Fisher, Evan Williams, Jon Helgeson, Christopher Bath, and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. I am Olgenestis Oliason, and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 42, Thor and the Norse View of Religion. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. What was the religion of the Vikings like? It depends on the Viking. Some were Christians. What I mean to say is that the term Viking is not very useful when discussing the Norse people or their religion. So I try to talk about the Norse and not Vikings, Unless I am actually talking about Vikings. The Norse people were those who spoke variations of the language now known as Old Norse. So before I start, I want to state clearly that those experts who talk about the religion of the Vikings without any caveats are either assuming you can't handle too many facts, or they don't actually know very much. The subject of this episode is the religion of these Norse people. I will try to explain how they viewed their religion, their gods, and myths. Even their answers to the question of life, the universe, and everything. To accomplish this, I will be using the god Thor as my central character. Not only because he is so well known, but also because there are so many stories about him. There are no other gods. There might be angels or devils, but none that you should worship. I am just going to avoid the topics of saints and the trinity, because this is not the time 
or place. If you've mostly associated with cultures where this is the prevalent view, it is likely that you have a hard time understanding polytheistic religions like that of the Norse. In general, we all get it, many gods instead of one. But there are other aspects that are often forgotten. For Christians, there is always some authority. If there is not a pope, bishop, leader, elder, priest, or any one person, then you still have the Bible itself. To a Norse person in the 10th century, it was very different. Religion was not fixed or even literal. In the Norse world, there were no central authorities on religious matters. Religion was regional and even personal. They might have known some of the myths we think of as central to the religion, but it is unlikely they knew all of them. I can safely and rather definitely claim that most of the Norse pagans knew myths that did not survive. Those lost myths might even have been central to how they understood the world. I know that as soon as I try to put myself in the shoes of people who lived over a thousand years ago, I might mix my metaphors and overstep, but there is a need for some interpretation in some matters. Before I go on, I must stress that I am not saying that the interpretations I mention are the whole truth. They might have been true for some people, in some places, at some moments in time. That is actually my point. We can't make generalizations when talking about the Norse view of religion. In Christianity, there is the problem of evil. It is the central question that priests theologians, philosophers, and ordinary people have tried to answer. How can evil things happen if God is good, all-knowing, and all-powerful? While I can't interpret how this was understood by all polytheistic religions, I can say that the question of evil doesn't matter in Norse religion. The gods are vain, petty, childish, ignorant, etc., etc. These are the gods you expect in a world that is cruel, unloving, random, and unfair. In Greek mythology, this can be seen in the Trojan War. There are earthly reasons for the war, but they don't matter much. The conflict is really between the gods and the people. Even heroes and kings are only pawns. So you might try to get the gods on your side, but you can never be sure they'll listen. You can even get caught between two warring gods. They are not like Santa Claus. They mostly don't care if you've been bad or good. This might sound like the pagans were immoral. They were not. We have sources that are very clear on what is good behavior and what is not. At times their moral universe was the same as ours, but not always. Even our idea of what a god is, and is not, might cloud our understanding. I imagine many people did not believe in the literal versions of the gods we see in the surviving myths. I imagine many people did not believe in the literal versions of the gods we see in the surviving myths. 
To understand what the gods were, it is sometimes helpful to look at their specializations. They can be the personification of the sea or the weather and so on. But we can take this view too far. In Norse mythology, we have Njörður, who is the god of the sea. We also have Ayr, who is the god of the sea. How can they both control the sea? Do we view them as compartmentalized version of the god of Abraham? Is Njörður the god of the sea? Could he be a god of the sea? Could he simply be one personification of the sea? In the Norse myth, we often see overlapping domains. Freyr is the god of fertility and agriculture, but if we think about it a little, we can also see Thor as being a fertility god of sorts. It sounds impressive to be the god of thunder, but what does it mean? As Freddie Mercury told us, thunderbolts and lightning can be very, very frightening. But is that all? Might he actually be a personification of weather in general? Suddenly, he isn't just a loud god. He is vital to everyday survival. If we dig a little, we can find clues that Thor was in fact associated with fertility and agriculture. There are even Bronze Age stone carvings of a very large man holding what looks like an axe over two people embracing or even kissing. The evidence is not nearly conclusive, but I would argue that this might in fact be an early depiction of Thor or his predecessor sanctifying a marriage. Some of the most popular stories about Thor are the ones where he is fighting giants and trolls. What do these trolls and giants represent? Many things, but often they are manifestations of cold, winter and darkness. It makes perfect sense that a weather god, a god of fertility and agriculture, has the job of fighting against the elements of winter. When Thor uses his hammer Mjölnir against the ice giants, it becomes a weapon of summer. The giants always crave the hammer. They keep trying to steal it from him. Why? Because if Thor loses the hammer, they can defeat him. Summer is lost, life is lost, winter is eternal. The hammer is the symbol of life and fertility, so it becomes a perfect symbol for our merits. There is hope of a good crop of food and children under the protection of Mjölnir. Thor is often referred to as a sky god. That is true, but it is important to remember that his parentage is mixed. Odin is in many ways a typical sky god. But let's not forget that Thor's mother is Fjörkin or Jörth. She is very clearly a representation of the earth, not the planet earth, but rather the soil itself, the rocks and the mountains. It is easy to see that a god born of the earth could very well be a god of agriculture and fertility. 
Thor is best known for his hammer Mjölnir, so we imagine him banging his hammer and producing thunder and lightning. But let's think of his mode of transportation. His father has an eight-legged horse named Sleipnir. That is a beast worthy of a sky god. Unless you make the connection that spiders have eight legs, was Sleipnir a spider-like horse? Anyway, what kind of beast does Thor ride? None, in fact. But how does he get around? The sky god of thunder has a chariot that is pulled by a pair of goats. Maybe not the animals of a sky god? Except maybe mountain goats? But more likely we have another clue of his importance to agriculture. The goats themselves are a magical source of food. Thor can kill the goats and eat them, but then he gathers their bones on their skin, waves his hammer, and the goats live to be eaten again. Thor was a protector at sea, but here is also the ambiguity and overlapping domains because, as I mentioned before, Njörður and Ayr were also connected to the sea. It does not seem to be a question of who controls the ocean, but rather who was your best bet if you wanted to get safely to your destination. But why was Thor important at sea? This is, of course, connected to his role as a weather god, though the connection is not always clear. Some of the most popular stories about Thor deal with his fishing trips. His catch is not puny fish like sharks or even great big whales. No, he was hunting for the great sea serpent Jörmungandr, who encircles the world. There are many interpretations for this, but I mostly imagine the monster as a general manifestation of the dangers at sea. Maybe the great beast is a symbol of storms and other treacherous weather. Thor is never able to defeat Jörmungandr or the giants and trolls, but he keeps fighting them all the same. Many of the Norse traveled by sea and were at the mercy of the elements. If Thor was on your side, your ship might be safe. This also leads us to examples that show us that Thor was important to seafaring, but at the same time gives us a fascinating glimpse of how pagans viewed the Christian religion. These are both examples from semi-historical accounts. Like much of northern Europe, Icelanders were being pressured to convert to Christianity, so there was always a class of cultures. There was a famous and infamous, for violence, missionary called Thangbrandr who was sent to convert the people of Iceland. When his ship was carried off and damaged by the sea, it was seen as Thor asserting his dominance over Christ. A poetess named Steinun wrote a rather rude poem about it. About a century earlier, there was Helgi Magri, or Helgi the Skinny, Named so because he was starved for about two years as a child. 
For the people in Akureyri and the whole region around the fjord, the deep fjord in the middle of the sheep's back, that is, he is the main settler. You can visit his statue in Akureyri. It is notable for the presence and prominence of his wife Thorin. Usually women are omitted from such imagery. You can even walk up Helgi the Skinny Street, but it is quite short. Thorin has a street which is much longer and actually divides most of Akureyri south of the river. Helgi stands out for being one of the settlers who, though of Norse stock, was Christian. He was born in Ireland. It is likely that his religious views were much influenced by his wife. Helgi's religion is described as being mixed. He had so lead his way to Iceland, but his ultimate settlement was called Christness, Christ's Peninsula. Jesus was for everyday matters, but Thor was for the sea and other serious stuff. Incidentally, if you go to Christmas, you can visit a museum that tells the story of tuberculosis in an old hospital. A bit more to the south, you can find my sister, but don't visit her. She would be quite confused and likely annoyed. People like Steinun, the poetess, and Helgi the Skinny saw Christ as one of many gods. The polytheistic system can incorporate new gods. Today you can find statues of Jesus in Hindu temples. If Jesus had turned out to be more affected at guiding and protecting ships, Steinun might have been more impressed by him, and Helgi could have did Thor altogether. The line between Christian and pagan is even less clear in some cases. There are some depictions of Thor and his hammer Mjölnir that are ambiguous. The most famous are pendants, such as the Thor's hammer or wolf cross from Foss. Worn on a string, it looks like a hammer. Turn it upside down, and it's a cross. Some people, even scholars, have theorized that it could have been a way for pagans who wanted to sneakily hide their religion when they were among the Christians. If we take the story of Helgi the Skinny as fact, or at least echoing a real approach to religion, then it might not be subterfuge at all. It is just an elegant way of aligning yourself with two gods at once. This then leads to the famous statue of Thor from Eirland near Akureyri. I say a statue of Thor, but if you have visited the Icelandic National Museum, you might have seen it. It is a tiny little figure, a man with a pointy hat. He seems to be twisting his beard, which then morphs into an item that is vaguely shaped like a cross... For well over a hundred years, nobody ever thought of it being anything other than Thor and his hammer. But the National Museum has rather confusingly decided to push a fringe theory that this might in fact be Christ holding a cross. It doesn't actually look like a Christian cross to me. 
I also don't remember Jesus handling a cross in this way. Why would Jesus be twisting his beard like that? I just don't buy it. But if I did see an element of Christian symbolism in the statue, I would rather imagine it as a combination of Thor and some Christian elements. I mentioned it was found near Akureyri, which makes it a part of the area claimed by Helgi the Skinny. Fits rather nicely, though I don't believe it's true. Just my little mind game. After Christianity had taken hold of the land of the Norse, there were still lingering elements of Thor. The most notable is the Norwegian king Saint Olaf. After his death, he became a stand-in for the Thunder God. The most obvious example of this is that he is said to fight trolls, just like Thor. Then there is the fact that St. Olaf is frequently depicted holding a battle axe. Today, St. Olaf's axe is one of the symbols included in the Norwegian coat of arms. There is not a straight line that leads from the Lord's man sanctifying a marriage under his axe all the way through Thor and St. Olaf to the present-day symbol of Norway. But there could be a continuity, reaching all the way back to the Bronze Age. Every step is subject to debate, but I think it might be true all the same. That is it for today. I hope I have helped my listeners reach a place of confusion and ambiguity, but, paradoxically, a place of better understanding. That is it for today. Thanks to Vida von Hellstare, Emily Cooper, Julie Fisher, Evan Williams, Jon Helgeson, Christopher Both, and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, Catherine Matthews, and Robin Williams, friends of the podcast. I am Olgenestis Oliason, and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 42, Thor and the Norse view of religion. This is Stories of Iceland. I am Olgnisti Soljason, and you have been listening to an early access version of episode 42, Thor and the Norse view of gods and religion. Thank you all for sticking around. I hope I will make it worth your while.